Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 14th, we're studying Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Opposition against Jesus continues to build from the Pharisees. They were ready to kill Jesus after he healed a man on the Sabbath. Now they think that Jesus is in league with Satan after Jesus cast a demon out from a demon-possessed man. Jesus responds to their opposition with words of rebuke to Pharisees, but words that also speak comfort to his Christians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz is the Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, good morning. Great to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Kuntz, give us some context here in Matthew's Gospel. Where have we been that will help us as we dig into these specific verses today? Yeah, Jesus has sent out his, uh, he, he has begun his mission, and uh, what you're seeing now on the cusp of, in the next chapter, um, a discussion of how that mission goes in the parable of the sower, is the real opposition that he's facing from his own people, uh, from his fellow Jews who have the same scriptures he does, who have been expecting the Messiah uh, for long ages. And now they're saying, okay, the Messiah is here, uh, but we don't recognize him as Messiah. And uh, we're, in fact, going to call what he's doing not just not on point, but actually evil. So the, the depth of opposition to Jesus is becoming clear. And I think what we're going to see in today's text is what it is like when people oppose Jesus. What do they say? Uh, what is their... Uh, great point that they're going to make about this is why Jesus is wrong. This is why he's evil. This is why he can't be, in fact, who he says he is. The irony of that, that the opposition of Jesus is growing here, is that he's facing real enemies in front of them. He's he's facing demons. Right. If ever there was opposition against the people of Israel, it, it would have been the demonic forces, the, the enemy, the old evil foe allied against them. And, and Jesus is driving demons out, and, and that is actually causing the opposition to grow, which, which just strikes me as, as terribly <laughs> ironic. Right, right. and it, it's really unfortunate, I think, a lot of times when people you know, watch a movie or something, uh, the movie sets up for you, okay, there's good guys and there's bad guys, right? But what's happening in the Gospels is that Jesus is completely good, the demons are completely evil, but the human beings, the, the people who are only human, who are not the God-man, nor are they demons, are constantly divided, and they're going back and forth. And one of the things I think that the Pharisees understand is that if they ask the right questions of Jesus in public, or if they you know, brand him in the right way, uh, people who are kind of on the fence will tip in their favor and will go against him as the Messiah. So they understand that the role of sort of propaganda, in the, you know, if you want to use that word, is to change people from doubting to actively opposed, as they themselves are. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text, and I think that'll help us to talk more about this particular demon possession that we're going to encounter here today. So again, we're in Matthew mm -hmm. chapter 12, uh, beginning of verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Pastor Kuntz, the, the scene is set when a demon-oppressed man is brought to Jesus. So just as a way of introduction, mm-hmm. then, what mm-hmm. what is demon possession? Uh, demon possession is when an evil angel who fell with Satan and is under Satan's command uh, takes physical possession of a human being. Um, you see this in the scriptures uh, almost exclusively, almost, in the Gospels. And um, its continuance uh, in human history is witnessed to by uh, the church's history of mission, often, especially when the church is in a uh, particularly a d- spiritually dark environment, has entered that environment, a demon possession will be a fact in much the same way that when Jesus uh, comes into the world in the flesh, uh, he, we, we find people possessed by demons uh, that you know, we didn't see in, in any kind of numbers like this in the Old Testament. Um, that physical possession has always uh, ill effects uh, on, the, on that individual. And then in other instances, you can see in the Gospels, also often on that person's family or um, neighborhood, you know, the Gadarene uh, demoniac, the demon-possessed man in Mark's Gospel, uh, cannot go home uh, because the demon seizes him and, and causes him to be violent and destructive. Uh, with his own family and and village, and so the matter of demon possession that would be distinct then, say from like what First Peter five describes, where where Peter talks about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone or to to attack, or maybe uh, when right. Paul talks about using the armor of God in Ephesians six to arm against the the devil's attacks against spiritual attacks. Demon possession is right. more severe than that. Yes, and the issue here is the possession of a human being by either the the Holy Spirit or an evil spirit. So once you understand that, you understand that a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. This is not something that Christians need to worry about in the same way that you might worry about, you know, your your car or your home being broken into. Uh, The devil's attacks on Christ's people are not the same thing as the devil's possession of people who are far from Christ. You don't, you don't see demon possessions after Jesus cleanses or heals someone who is possessed by demons. His disciples do not fear demon possession, even though the devil seeks to tempt them, and with Judas obviously succeeds. So Christians today should not be worried about being possessed by a demon, but should be prepared against the devil's attacks against their faith. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. He wants to, he wants to tempt. He does not have the same power that he might if Christ uh, had not come to you and given you his Holy Spirit. So in his jealousy and rage, uh, because he cannot have you for his own, uh, he wants to tempt you and make it seem as if his desires for your life uh, are actually yours. And uh, he does that, as I said, successfully with Judas. It's not a possession of Judas. It is a successful temptation of Judas. Why, why is it that demon possession seems to spike in the Gospels, do you think? Yeah, I think it is like when you go down into a basement and it's all dark and then you turn the lights on and you realize what is actually down there. 
with Jesus coming into the world, uh, what changes is not the evil of the world or the nature of Satan's activity in the world. Satan is not that creative. Uh, he is doing with human beings what he has always done. There has always been horrible delusion and idolatry and, and all kinds of unrighteousness going on in the world before the birth of our Lord. What happens in the Gospels is that the light has now dawned, and it reveals both the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but also the horrible depths of evil into which Satan has lured the human race. So what's happening in the Gospels is not that you have a, a, an utterly unique situation, as if there were no demons before or since, but that with the coming of Christ, the demons are now running scared, and when people are running scared, they begin to reveal who they truly are uh, in their fright and in their panic uh, in a way that they did not before. So what happens here, then, is not the first time that Jesus has, has healed a demon-possessed man. I, I wonder, is, is there some significance? As you mentioned, the demon possession affects people differently throughout the Gospels. This man in particular is blind and mute, and that's what Jesus heals him so that he's able to speak and to see. Is there a significance mm -hmm. to those per two particular faculties in, in this text, do you think? Well, Satan is always someone who hates God's gifts and especially God's creation. There's something that you can see um, in several of the cases of demon possession that they are, they are wounding. You know, in Mark, you have the boy who is cast sometimes into fire and sometimes into water, uh, both to his peril. Uh, the Gadarene demoniac is, is you know, we, we would call it self-harming or cutting. I mean, he is opening up wounds on himself constantly and screaming. You know, there is, Satan loves to disfigure God's, cre God's creatures and God's creation. He loves to befoul and despoil what God has made. And it's no different here in that the man's faculties of seeing and of speaking have been taken from him. And what is happening is that Jesus, in bringing light into creation, is also restoring creation even in individual cases of seeing or speaking, to its true purpose. You were given eyes to see and a mouth to speak, and Jesus gives this man freedom from what has been oppressing him and freedom to be who he was actually made to be. Hmm. So the miracle Jesus performs is, is wonderful. It's, I mean, he's done this before. That's the, the scenario. The rest of the text really focuses then on these reactions, particularly the Pharisees of what Jesus has done. Before we get to the Pharisees' reaction, there are people around who, it says, are amazed and ask, can this be the son of David? Before we focus in on the, the Pharisees' reaction, Pastor Kuntz, what's, how are the people responding to Jesus? The people are asking, uh, maybe in, in wonder, or maybe they're they actually decided in their minds, and uh, they're just you know, stating it in the, in the form of a question, um, Matthew leaves that, you know, a little unsure how, how, how much on Jesus's side are these people. But what they're asking is, is this truly the Messiah? Because the Messiah is the one who comes to save Israel according to God's promise, especially in 2 Samuel 7, that he will build up the house of David forever, and there will be one who will sit on David's throne forever and ever. So if he's sitting on that throne forever and ever, then he's also going to be someone who can do amazing things, even beyond what David himself could do or Solomon and all his wisdom could accomplish. So they are asking, hey, maybe this guy is the savior we've been waiting for, we've been hoping for, we've been looking for. And that question it, because it's phrased as a question, is then going to be answered by the Pharisees with their own grim, miserable certainty that, you know, this guy's basically just tricking you. So they don't deny it. What's interesting is Jesus's opponents don't have to attack the reality of the miracle. That's kind of a modern way of going against Jesus. Well, you know, he was just 
pretending or he, you know, it was fake or Matthew was hallucinating. That's kind of a modern way of attacking the miracles of Jesus. The Pharisees are a little subtler in that they don't say, oh, no, it didn't really happen because they can't deny it. The man who has been totally changed, whose life has been turned around, is standing right there. So they instead want to plant doubt in people's minds, not about the miracle, but about the motivation behind the miracle. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point to make. What about, and so the, the Pharisees say he's doing this by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And we've encountered that name Beelzebul once in Matthew before, but just to refresh our memories, what is what is Beelzebul yeah. or who is Beelzebul? Beelzebul is a, is a Jewish way of talking derogatorily about pagan gods. The one in view specifically is the chief of the Canaanite, the ancient Canaanite pantheon, Baal, B-A-A-L. So he would be, that that comes to mean simply Lord. Uh, Beelzebul means uh, Lord of the Flies, which is a book maybe you had to read when you were in school. Uh, That's where that idea comes from. And so Lord of the Flies is that he's surrounded, it's like a it's like rotten meat surrounded by swarms of flies. It's, it's, it's a term of abuse for the pagan source of evil. And so, so labeling Jesus, and you see that here the power of labels, labeling Jesus as motivated by coming from uh, in league with uh, pagan sources of evil power, uh, labels him as simultaneously uh, both foreign, that is, attached to pagan gods, and maybe himself secretly a pagan, secretly maybe a Gentile. So it's an attack on his origin. Where did this guy come from? And then it's also a statement that um, everyone is simply being deceived. What you saw is not what, you, what, is not what is really happening. What, what you are trusting uh, that your eyes uh, witnessed uh, let me explain to you where that actually came from. Let me tell you the story behind the story. So the Pharisees are presenting, as it were, kind of a secret theory about where all this is coming from. Again, not denying that it occurred, but saying, look, uh, if you come over here, if you listen to us, if you stop listening to Jesus, we'll explain to you how and why this is all really happening. So, and before we look at what Jesus says, then I think I mean one of the questions that occurs is, well, why? I mean, what's the problem? Like, he just cast out a demon. In, in a few verses, they're going to ask him, "Hey, do a sign," and it's like, well, he just did one. I mean, why such opposition to what should, at least in our eyes, seem so obviously good? Yeah, yeah, because because they understand that Jesus has a very different not only understanding of what God's word is about, because Jesus understands God's word not to be about a set of laws that will keep the Jewish people holy and safe and apart from everyone else. That's the Pharisees' understanding, and they're going to, the Pharisees will eventually be, you know, the forefathers of what becomes what we now call Judaism, right? Um, So it's a totally different interpretation of what the Old Testament is about. And they know that. They also know that that leads Jesus, practically speaking, to do, to do very different things with his life rather than police people's individual uh, grasp of, you know, are you tithing the herbs that have come into your home, including the littlest ones, mint and dill and cumin. So he's got, he's got a different understanding of the Bible. He's got a different understanding of how that matters. And so he is going around doing things, some of which they themselves do. He's going to comment, you know, your sons, your disciples, they also cast out demons. But a lot of it, and obviously his death and his resurrection, are going to go far beyond anything that they imagine God's word has promised. And I think, you know, credit to the Pharisees, they understand that this guy is going to be trouble for them. And what they're trying to do is nip that trouble in the bud. Right? They want to kill it in the very beginning of spring before it flowers fully in the death and resurrection of the Lord. So before that comes to pass, before he becomes as popular in Israel as he will be, they want to make sure that everybody just kind of walks away from him 
everybody stops paying attention, and then he'll stop being a problem for them. Hmm. And they've got a pretty good ploy, as you said, to to label him Beelzebul, to cast him as a foreigner, as a, a pagan, and and of course evil. That's a that's a pretty strong pretty strong argument that they're they're marshalling here. Jesus, it says, knows their thoughts. So this is one of those cases where where apparently it's not voiced out loud to him, but Jesus is going to respond to it anyway. What's the what's the picture that Jesus starts to to lay out here at the beginning of his response in verse twenty five? What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't respond to the label right away. He he starts with the obvious fact that a demon has fled at his word. Okay? So he doesn't respond right away to the label, and I think that strategy is very important to pay attention to, that when you are labeled, you don't necessarily have to say, well, I'm not you know, whatever the label is, like you say, let me prove that to you. He starts not from the label, but from the obvious good thing that has come into the world because he's there. He starts from the fact that the demon has been cast out. So he starts with the logic of, if I'm working with the devil, how is it that the devil is fleeing from me? You know, so he's saying, uh, if I'm actually working for the devil, then what's going to happen is I'm going to I'm, he's destroying his own kingdom. It doesn't even make sense. How could he hire me to send his own workers, the demons, away? Every kingdom that is divided against itself is laid waste. Civil war destroys a country no matter who wins. This is what he's saying. And people are going to be aware of this, right? Uh, civil war is just simply utterly destructive. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. You know, So if you're going to have the father and the mother fighting, if you're going to have the brother fighting against the brother, eventually everyone's going to die. So, he, so he, what he's saying is, look, if I'm casting out demons, then uh, Satan is, if I'm actually working for him, has hired me uh, to kill him. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So it, it's interesting. He says, the crowd, you guys know that I've done this good thing. And then he also flatters them, not by treating them with his own, let's say, propaganda. So he doesn't respond to the label with another simplistic label. He flatters the crowd's intelligence and the Pharisees, I, you know, presumably, by saying, look, you guys can think through this for yourself. If I were working for Satan, how could I be going against Satan? This doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Yeah, so that and that's the first part of his his argument. And then just so I don't know when this occurred to me, but at some point during my ministry where Jesus says if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. So the reality that Jesus mm-hmm. is saying is that Satan actually isn't divided against himself. Right? right. I mean, okay. Could could you how, how so the fact is he's not divided against himself because and the conflict between Jesus and Satan shows that, that Satan is actually quite allied together with all of his demons in attacking Jesus. Yes. Yes. Satan has total solidarity with himself, and Jesus, being totally good and sinless, has total solidarity with his side, which is, which is goodness. The people who are divided, the irony here is that everyone who is neither Satan nor Jesus, all the human beings standing there listening to this, both the crowd and the man who's been healed, and the Pharisees, those are the people who are divided. Those are the people who are not sure. Those are the people who sometimes, you know, want to trust in Jesus or do trust in him, and other times they do evil things or they think that evil is okay. You know, this is the great irony of the discussion of division, is that, you know, Jesus is not at all divided and Satan is not at all divided. It's only human beings who are divided. So, and, and so with that thought, then the, there's a second part that Jesus, before he, before he talks about what he is actually doing, there's a, a second right. part where, where he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? What's the, is, is that a bit of a barb there at the Pharisees? Yeah, because he knows that the idea of freeing people from demons is is a live one for everybody, right? So let's be clear, too, that this isn't a controversial idea that demons exist and sometimes possess human beings. So he knows that the Pharisees 
sons, which could be, you know, actual genealogical, biological sons, or it could be, uh, and I think it's more likely that it is, like when in the Old Testament, those who are the disciples, the students of the prophets, are called sons of the prophets. So the, the Pharisees' students, those whom they're teaching, sort of their you know, pastors in training type of idea, clergy in training, they're also trying to cast out demons. You can see some Jewish exorcists in the book of Acts, for instance, who are not Christians, right? But they're trying to cast out demons. And he says, okay, so if they're doing that, <laughs> then are they also in league with Satan? Right? So the thing that I'm doing that you're criticizing, your own students do, and that must mean that they're also in league with Satan. Does that make any sense? You know, I mean, so he's got them. He's, he, ratchets, he ratchets it up just a little bit. Uh, instead of just saying, how could I possibly be in league with Satan? He's saying, oh, yeah, also your students do exactly what I do. Are they also in league with Satan? So he's catching them in uh, just total hypocrisy. But, you know, they're not really worried about hypocrisy. They're just worried about winning the propaganda battle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and take our break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to it on Worldwide KFU. Look in the middle part of Matthew chapter 12 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. Please stick around. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Our listeners and supporters are talking about Worldwide KFUO. Yeah, I think your programming is just wonderful. I love the emphasis on the traditional tunes rather than the modern music. Keep up the good work. Thank you. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. That's 314-996-1542. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. With the next Law and Gospel broadcast and Open Mic Friday, you have the opportunity to phone me, Tom Baker, and ask any theological question on your mind. And I will do the best I can from a biblical point of view to answer that question. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Friday, February 14th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37 with Pastor Adam Kuntz, Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' response to the Pharisees' opposition, their accusation that he is casting out demons by the by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. And we, we looked at how he just shows the foolishness of that answer. And then he starts to answer more in, in the affirmative there in verse 28. He says, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's, what's the point Jesus is making? He's saying that if what I'm doing is not in fact evil, but good, then you need to recognize that something new is occurring in the world and not that God's kingdom is some kind of, you know, geographical entity like, you know, the state of Kansas or the country of Canada or something, but that God's reign among mankind has now come in your midst, right? The kingdom of God is in your midst, as he says in Luke's gospel. So they, he's saying, look, uh, follow my argument. It's pretty easy. You're being hypocritical. Now understand what's actually going on is that God's reign has come. This is his message uh, as soon as he begins his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew, is at hand. 
So they need to realize not only what is negatively obvious, he's not in league with Satan, but what is also positively obvious, he is in league with the Most High, and the Most High is now here in their midst. Recognizing that, he switches the metaphor uh, rather abruptly from uh, the set of three rhetorical questions to this image of a house and of Satan as a kind of householder, right? So when you think about demon possession, think about Satan wanting to be a rich man and having lots of possessions, but he wants human souls instead of, you know, money or uh, investments or something. And so he is a strong man and he's got everything inside his house. Remember people, you know, that people don't have bank accounts uh, and there's no, <laughs> there's no offshore financing available back then. So if you're rich, you're keeping pretty much everything you own inside your house, right? Everything that you're worth is sitting there somehow, generally in a very tangible way. And Jesus says, uh, now, what, what's going on? In fact, I have come and I have bound the strong man. He doesn't have the same power or strength that he did before. Think of, you know, think of Samson uh, shorn and blinded among the Philistines. You know, his power is gone. And so Jesus says, obviously, now that I've come, Right? And this is part of the great, I think, good news of this specific passage that we're looking at this morning, is that Jesus has come and brings with him the binding of Satan. Satan's power is now fleeing away. It's draining away. Right? Satan is circling the drain now that the Messiah has come. So how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That's what I'm doing. Uh, then indeed he may plunder his house. So th- I love this image because it's sort of like when Jesus talks about, you know, he will come like a thief in the night uh, or uh, comparing uh, the one who finds the kingdom of God in Matthew 13 uh, to the guy who's digging up treasure in a field. Uh, it's, it's this amazing image of Jesus just destroying everything that Satan had hoarded and freeing the captives. You know, he is plundering his goods. He's taking away all Satan's possessions, all these human souls that were captive to him. Jesus now says, these are mine. Hmm. Hmm. So how does, how does Jesus do that, Pastor Coons? He's doing it in a variety of ways. That's where if you go through Matthew's gospel and you look at the phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, you know, you can see that he's doing that. We could say overall he's doing that through his word. But in, in different circumstances, it could be that he's healing somebody, or it could be that he's uh, freeing someone for, from a demon. It could be that he's, uh, that he's teaching his disciples the realities of the kingdom, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. In all those things, anytime that God's word is coming into uh, someone's life, anytime that the reign of God is coming upon someone, this also continues to, to, to today through God's word. Anytime that that's happening, uh, Satan's power is now fleeing away uh, because the word of God has now come uh, in Jesus Christ. And uh, Satan just doesn't have anything to counter that. Jesus is actually stronger. Uh, he's actually uh, bigger and more powerful uh, than anything that Satan has. And so in this specific instance, in today's text, it is freeing from the oppression of a demon. But any of the ways in which God's word reaches people, either in the Gospels or down to the present day, is a way in which Jesus's reign is coming and Satan's reign is being eclipsed. Would we ultimately? I think we would want to say that Jesus binds Satan by his death and his resurrection. Tie tie this passage. Say even I mean to the the very first gospel promise where where the offspring will crush the devil's head. I mean, are, are we right to tie all of those things together and see Jesus' victory ultimately there? Well, of course, that's what it all hinges upon, right? All the all all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus, and Jesus stakes his everything on the fact that the son of man will suffer and die and on the third day rise. So the death and resurrection of Jesus are the seal and the sign that the reign of God is come now in Christ 
as he promised, as the scriptures promised, the righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So without that death and resurrection, of course, none of this would come true. You know, it would seem that he would be a liar without his death and resurrection, and that all our hopes and the hopes of so many people throughout the ages would be disappointed. So when we're talking about the word of God coming into somebody's life, we have to speak of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because that is the way that it all hangs together. The reign of God, uh, the scriptures of God, it all hinges upon the great hinge of world history and of the Bible is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. Earlier, Pastor Kins, you were talking about how the irony is that, in one of the ironic parts of this text, is that Jesus is not divided, Satan is not divided, but the people are. And as Jesus' response continues, it, it seems that he, he starts to take away that middle ground. You're either with Jesus or you're for yeah. Jesus. In, in verse 30, what's he, what's he getting at? Yeah, exactly. He is calling for them to realize that there are only two sides. There is no middle ground. There's no way that they can just sit on the fence and think, oh, I like that Jesus, but those Pharisees do have a point. And so he cuts that middle ground out from beneath anyone who wants to continue standing there by saying, whoever is not with me is actually against me. It doesn't matter whether he says it or not. It doesn't matter whether he you know, walks over to the other group and stands there with them or not. Whoever is not actively allied with me is actively against me. And whoever does not gather with me, that is in this harvest work, he's going to talk more about that really in chapter 13. Whoever does not gather with me in this work of the kingdom is actually scattering. And what that means is that the one who is scattering in the time of harvest, which has now come, uh, the one who is scattering is the one who is working against the work of God. And this is what he means when he says, therefore, because once you realize there's no middle ground, then you understand what he's about to say about the Holy Spirit. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And that in itself is a remarkable statement. And uh, I think in so many ways, such a beautiful statement, because people tend to think this is just my experience. It, it could be different from other people. In my experience, people tend to believe that their sins are unique, and when they are horrified by them, they believe that their sins are uniquely awful. So uh, often they'll think, oh, my sin is unique, that, therefore God understands that I love this sin because he and I have an understanding about this sin, and he knows how I am and what, I, what I'm capable of. But even when they become terrified of their sins, then Satan is very eager for you to believe that your sins are uniquely awful and therefore could not be forgiven. Hmm. Uh, but the Son of Man says instead, every, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, uh, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And, and the, the perennial question is, what is the blasphemy against the Spirit? What is the sin against the Holy Spirit? And it's simply this. It is to call the work of Christ evil. It is to call the work of Christ evil. Uh, it is not any particular action, but it is to call the work of Christ evil, which means to cut yourself off from the source of grace and life that God is giving to the world. It's kind of obvious when you, when you think about it, uh, but you know, people wonder, have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? And I would say, if you're asking that question, of course you haven't. If you're worried about that, of course you haven't. Uh, the people who have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit are people who are cutting themselves off from the work of Christ, saying it's evil, it's wrong, it's from Satan, <laughs> it's Beelzebul, uh, and therefore they obviously cannot receive the grace that Christ brings. So ultimately, the sin against the Holy Spirit is precisely what the Pharisees are doing right here, that they are saying... Jesus is in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. His power comes from the devil rather than recognizing that Jesus actually is, in, is working in concert with the Holy Spirit, which is why this is called the sin against the Holy Spirit. Right, right. And his, his, his reign, his work, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, these are all the Spirit's work for the salvation of mankind. Uh, these are the things that the Spirit uh, has proclaimed through the church 
uh, in every place throughout the ages. So the issue here is not that Jesus feels insulted, because he goes on to say very specifically, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is himself, will be forgiven. You know, this is not about Jesus's feelings being hurt by the inaccurate and malicious labeling and slander that he's undergoing. It's not about him or his feelings. He doesn't, in a, in a sense, care that the Pharisees are saying these stupid things. The issue is that if people listen to them, or if they themselves continue to believe these things, then they will have cut themselves off from receiving the grace of God, the things that the Spirit of God is doing through the Son of Man, crucified, died, and risen. That is the issue. That is always the issue. Can, it, it, you know, am I calling what uh, the Spirit of God has done in and through the Son and, proclaim, and is proclaiming, am I calling that evil? Because if that's what I'm doing, then how can I ever receive this forgiveness, life, and salvation that's being offered? And and this sin would also, uh, when we think about, I mean, as, as you said, you know, people will ask, how have I committed it? Am I committing it? And and as you said, when we're asking that question, that's a, a sign that we're we're not committing it because that's a sign of faith that we would ask such a question at all. But right. we would also say that the sin against the Holy Spirit, then it's not just a one time rejection, but it's a continued right. lifelong rejection. Right, right, right. So uh, you know. Uh, a listener may be in the same situation that I was where I, you know, I, I can remember not being a Christian and uh, not understanding what, you know, Christianity was or, or why it mattered or what Jesus had done for me. Uh, and I was, you know, I suppose in a sense like rejecting, right. Uh, that work in uh, saying, Oh, that's, that's silly or for, that's for, you know, weak minded people that, you know, need forgiveness all the time or something. Right. Um, did I commit the sin against the Holy Spirit? Yes, I was rejecting the grace of Christ. I didn't know what the death of Jesus was about, and I didn't care, right? Um, but the sin against the Holy Spirit is not this, like, one time, okay, in, you know, 1991, you did this. You, you weren't a Christian in 1991, and so you're lost forever, no matter what you believe now. That's not the issue. The issue is this continued resistance uh, to what Christ has done for you. Uh, in which case you obviously cannot receive the gifts that he has for you because you don't want his gifts and you continue to reject them. Yeah, it's very important to be clear that this is not like a one-time slip-up. This is the continual opposition, the unbelief that says, I don't need Jesus. And, and so just to, just to put this out there very clearly, Pastor Coons, if, if someone is concerned that they might be committing this sin against the Holy Spirit or they've committed in the past, I mean, what, what should that person do? Okay. I mean, if you're concerned that you are committing it now, as we said, if you are concerned, you are obviously not committing it. Because why would you fear uh, going against someone whom you obviously love? How could you be opposed to him if you're, if you're so concerned about having offended him or having grieved him? Obviously, you love him. Obviously, you trust in him. If you're asking the question, you are a Christian and, and you're not committing this sin. If you're concerned about a past sin, what I would say to do is simply, you know, I, the, my assurance is that you are forgiven. You are in his grace. You stand at peace with God through Jesus Christ. If that's not enough, then I would say it is, it is fine for you to ask God's forgiveness for having rejected his work in the past at some time in your life. That's, that's fine. And it is very healing sometimes not to speak our own sins aloud, either you know, uh, to God directly or uh, to a pastor in individual confession and absolution. And the reason for that is not that God doesn't know what you did or what you thought or how you were at some point in your life, but it's very healing for you to say that thing out loud. I rejected your work. I resisted you at this time. And then to hear his forgiveness applied specifically to that wound in your soul, that can be very healing. Hmm. Jesus then, it seems, switches the picture on us yet again as, as his answer continues. He starts talking about trees and their fruit. What's the move that Jesus <laughs> yeah. makes as the text moves on? 
Yeah, he's now talking, uh, he's going to be speaking directly to the Pharisees in 34. And so he's bringing up a picture that you're going to be familiar with if you've been reading Matthew's Gospel, which is that uh, things have their own nature. Good trees make good fruit and bad trees make bad fruit. It seems kind of obvious, but the point is people don't just say and do the things that they say and do for no reason. It's not random, right? So he says, he, he, he presents this image of good trees and bad trees, and then he calls them something that John actually calls them in Luke's gospel, you brood of vipers, you, you sons of poisonous snakes. How can you possibly speak good when you are evil? And this is not just Jesus issuing insults. The reason for him to label them evil is for them to know the truth and repent. Okay? But he's going to be very clear. He's not going to you know, uh, soften the blow. He's going to say what you are doing, what you are saying, how you are, you're evil, you're malice, you're scheming. It's wrong. Okay. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is Jesus explaining how human beings are. That is that what we say, what we do, how we live comes out of our souls, the center of our being. The scriptures usually call that the heart. And that's where this comes from. So if they were good, they would call him good. Because they are evil, they call him evil. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, you know, going back to this image of the devil with his possessions, out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This is where things come from. It's also a return to what he said earlier Obviously, he is good since he is bringing forth good in the world in freeing men from their demons. When he, I mean, it seems uh, just, I know you mentioned the brood of vipers. That was a term that John, it, it seems that Jesus is playing the labeling game a, a bit back with them. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bit yeah. too much, but, yeah, but well, he's, he's turned the tables totally on them now. He has. He has. And I think it's important to say that names, there's a difference between naming something for what it is and name calling. So let's be clear about this. Name calling is not really concerned about accuracy, right? Name calling is not really about the name or its truth. It's really about what effect that word is going to have on people, whether it's the person uh, whom you are calling that you know nasty name, or the people who are listening to that person be labeled as such. So name calling is uh, a way for people to achieve something without worrying about its truth. Naming is actually a very wonderful thing. I mean, Adam names the animals in paradise. So naming in and of itself, calling something what it truly is, is godly. And in calling them, spiritually speaking, obviously not literally saying that they're snakes, but spiritually saying that they are, you know, they're coming from serpents. They're coming from the, the lowest form of animal life, uh, which was employed by Satan to deceive Eve and Adam. In calling them that, he is not doing it for the sake of just the effect that it's going to have on the other people who are listening. He's doing it for the sake of calling it what it is. And there's something very important to be said here that, that accuracy and truth, even when extremely unpleasant, is more important than anything. Because imagine the alternative if Jesus is just super nice and super polite to the Pharisees and says, well, gee, guys, I don't really think that's fair what you're saying about me. What he's doing in naming them for what they are is that he's making it clear also what the sides are, what is evil and what is good. Because if you're not clear about what is good and what is evil, it is very hard to tell the difference. You stay confused. Right. You can't tell the difference between Jesus and Satan. And he's saying the difference is apparent. People need to recognize that the reign of God is obviously good, is obviously here in who I am and what I do. 
And and this matter of of knowing the difference has eternal consequences, which is where where Jesus yeah. takes it at the very end. He brings up the day of judgment, and he talks about the matter of a person's words being that by which they will be justified or that by which they will be condemned. What what is Jesus? What words is he talking about? Yeah, what words is he talking about? Everything we've ever said, or everything we've ever thought, or just what we mutter under our breath. What is he talking about? With the day of judgment, that's what helps make it clear what he's actually speaking of. Because he's not speaking about um, every single thing that a person has ever let slip out of his mouth as if, you know, again, you said something once that was mean in, you know, whatever, 2002, and you can't be forgiven for it. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that at the judgment, and you will see a very clear picture of this in Matthew 25, there will be people who will, uh, who will have confessed him as Lord, recognized his work uh, and his reign as good, his death and his resurrection as good, and called him good, called him Lord. And those people, the sheep, will be recognized as his own, uh, chosen from before the foundation of the world, okay, uh, according to his grace and his purposes. Uh, beautiful stuff. The sheep will also not need to talk about how good they are, and they will be surprised when he commends them. The goats will be much like the Pharisees in that uh, they will also claim to have loved him, uh, but they will also have a deep desire to talk about how amazing they are. One of the things that you can see here is that everything that occurs in Matthew's gospel and all the parables that are told somehow tie back into the Sermon on the Mount, which is the single longest piece of teaching that Matthew does in his gospel. It all ties back in there, right? Um, hypocrisy ties back into evil. Uh, not recognizing Jesus for who he is or wanting to argue with him ties back into the evil tree with its evil fruit. So the one who is justified by his words is the one who recognizes Jesus as good and seeks nothing good in himself, but strangely enough, does good to his neighbor. The one who is condemned by his words is the one who is, you know, maybe a little bit divided about Jesus. So now maybe he's good or maybe what he's doing isn't so good. I'm not sure. You know, who can tell the difference between good and evil? But that evil person also is always undivided about his own goodness. This is one of the great ironies, right? When evil people oppose Jesus in the Gospels, uh, they want to make people unsure about Jesus, but never are they themselves unsure about themselves. Whereas his disciples are sure about his goodness and kind of unsure about themselves. I believe, oh Lord, help my unbelief. Pastor Coons, with just about a minute left here, give us a brief summary of the text as we wrap things up this morning. The Son of God, when he comes into the world, comes and does all manner of good to mankind. And this is what he still desires to do, and this is what his Spirit is carrying uh, to the nations through his word, this word concerning especially his death and his resurrection. Don't be surprised when people call that evil. Don't be surprised when people label him or his disciples as evil. It's happened before. It will happen again. But the reign of God is in our midst and it has come, and it is glorious. Uh, the stronger man is winning. Pastor Adam Coons is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>